Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. What is happening, Postshifters? Welcome back to another episode of the Postshift Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Sean Sewell. Um, I've got a little bit of work going on over my left-hand shoulder, my right-hand shoulder outside my uh, office today, uh, so I apologize for the sound of soaring. Uh, today is my 200th episode, the 200th episode of the Postshift Podcast. Um, I never thought I'd actually make it to this milestone. I thought I would got really bored with this a long time ago. Um, I wish I could actually keep exercising as much as I've pushed on the post-shift podcast but that being said it is my 200th episode so we had to have a very special guest um this is definitely a bucket list guest for me which i've had a couple over the last couple of months with covid and everything um and that is the king cocktail himself del de groff um what an amazing journey we chatted about everything he reminisced about his days starting out in the industry and just pretty much had a great chat, especially about Craft the Cocktail and the brand new edition of it 20 years, almost 20 years after the original. So I hope you really enjoy this episode, guys. Thank you as always for always listening and always supporting. I trust that uh, you enjoy this episode and please, 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 please have a good week. Bye. This is my 200th episode, as I told you. It's uh, It's been a year, almost two years now since I started the podcast and so... Every it's been difficult, especially during COVID, because I had a list of people that I wanted to interview face to face at shows. But obviously, as we progressed with COVID and everything, it's like okay, well, no, I gotta, I gotta pull the pin on Julie Reiner, and I gotta pull the pin on Eric and and Angus and and that sort of thing, and yourself, um, because we don't, I don't know the next time we're going to be crossing over at a, a an actual show, so. Um, yeah, I really appreciate your time because I know that you, with the new book coming out, uh, which we'll get to, you've been super, well, you're always busy to start with. Has, I'm curious, has the technology, has the techno, technology curve um, been difficult for you or have you just been a duck to water when it comes to like just jumping, being able to jump um, on Zoom calls and webcams and whatnot? Well, the first week, you know, and then you got it, you know, so it's, uh, I've been doing it since... I guess June now, May, June. Uh, and so I've done Instagram, a lot of Zoom. And now this new uh, this new format where you're in actually in different rooms and you have an avatar. That's just that today, my, my primer this morning for the upcoming Sante uh, Symposium was the first time I've been on that platform and I will be learning it uh, over the next week because we have a date in November to, to join the Sante Symposium and in an actual, uh, you know, rooms where we can walk around and walk up to different tables and enjoy what they're doing and watch their little videos. And it's pretty extraordinary. And then you go into it and then you go into the big room where the seminars take place and there's a big screen, you know, and that's where my PowerPoint will play for, uh, for the evolution of the martini, which is by the way, is a chapter in the recipe section of the book called The Evolution of the Martini, starting, obviously, with Jerry Thomas's 1888 uh, printed version, um, and then going up through modern, through the new millennium. And we stop off at five different eras, in the, and my partner, uh, Eric, will make a, from William Grant. William Grant was really a wonderful partner in this because they offered, <laughs> they didn't do what the typical liquor company does. Is, oh, you got to use my brands for everything. Yeah. We start with a Geneva, you know, in uh, in the fancy gin cocktail, which I consider to be the granddaddy, 1862, Johnson's book, I mean, uh, Thomas's book. I consider that to be the kind of granddaddy of the martini because it's gin with dashes and splashes, you know. 
it's the same format, same architecture. And then uh, I move into the, the 1888 era when the 50-50 martini started. And the 50-50 stayed throughout the whole 19th century right up to Prohibition. You know, the last 50-50, it wasn't called a martini, it was called a cocktail, the 50-50 cocktail. There's a lot of people at the end of the 19th century had real respect for Harry Johnson as one of the fathers of the profession. And they were loathed to call anything else a martini except this thing which had Old Tom, sweet vermouth, you know, a dash of beer, a dash of curacao. To them, that was the classic martini. So when they graduated to London Dry Gin and Noily Pratt Vermouth, which was one of the first dries available in our country, they called them cocktails or they called them, named them after, Charlie Mahoney named it after himself at the Hoffman House and after some of his customers. Uh, but they didn't yet. And, and then you go in the same volume to their martini recipe and it's Harry Johnson's recipe. So, so how, where did your journey start? How did you get into the game? Because, you know, it, it's interesting how I think there's going to be a lot of parallels with your career with a lot of younger modern bartenders because of the same sort of hurdles. And, and that's the thing. What, what, what's, how did you get, how did you get the start in the game? I was studying, Theater Arts at the University of Rhode Island, and we had a little play up at the Yale Drama Festival, which was reviewed by a, a critic from the New Yorker magazine, who was a, uh, at that time the elderly critic from the New Yorker magazine, as the best thing at the Yale Drama Festival. I went back to the university, packed my bags, and went to New York, moved into the <laughs> YMCA on 34th Street, and was absolutely sure that... Uh, uh, I would be on the Broadway boards uh, within months, you know, and, and I, would, I was, uh... <laughs> but, you know, you're 30 seconds in New York and you realize that life happens in the bars. I don't care where you are, what neighborhood you're in, uh, people gravitate toward the bars to, to, to do their business, lead their lives, because there are literally thousands of them, you know, and People have their extended families in their neighborhoods at their corner bar, you know. So I, I, I quickly, uh, you know, found my way first, uh, you know, into restaurants. But I did all kinds of crazy jobs. I put up posters around town. I was a moving man. I was a chauffeur. I did everything. But I always, 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 I, I kept a, a foot, a, you know, a foot in the bar world or in, 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 the, in the restaurant world because I started as a dishwasher. To tell you the truth, Sean, you'll never guess where in Howard Johnson's in Times Square. <laughs> I'm dead broke. I'm living at the YMCA. I need money coming in. I need cash flow. Um, and I, I got an acting class lined up, lined up, which I couldn't afford. But I, I talked the very prestigious acting coach into allowing me to clean his studio to get free lessons <laughs> and set it up, you know, for the lessons. And, uh, and, you know, I went into the Howard Johnson's because there was a sign in the window dishwasher and I went and found the manager and he said, we're not hiring. I said, what do you mean? There's a sign in the window. He said, that's a dishwasher. I said, yeah. And well, you speak English. <laughs> I was a babe in the woods. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I said, you mean because I speak English, I can't get the job? And he said, no, you idiot. You can have the job if you want it. <laughs> I have to tell you, some years later, uh, because I knew his daughter, I got to go uh, hang out at a book signing that Jacques Pepin was doing with it. And his daughter brought me. She said, Jeremy, my dad. And I said, oh, come on, I'm going to my dad's book signing. So we went in and we finally, when the line petered out a little bit, she brought me up. And she said, Dad, this is Dale DeGroff. He works at the Rain Rooms. Oh, 
Shobam, as you remember, the cocktail guy, you know, uh, here's somebody, you know, and I said, well, actually, I've got to tell you the truth, uh, Jacques, I started out at, at Howard Johnson's, and he goes, I do, I do start in this place. I said, come on. No, no, when they make the hotels, the Howard Johnson company, company you know, I, I, I was in Paris, and they bring me to New York to put me into this place in Times Square, where we invented dishes for the hotel. I make the fried clams there, and this one and that one, you know. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, Jacques. We were probably there at the same time, and we were, we were colleagues. You were inventing the dishes, and I was washing them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I had a lot of jobs, you know, here and there, and uh, waiter first, and then eventually uh, I became a, a service bartender and then a bartender. Actually, my very first bartending job was at Gracie Mansion, where the mayor lives in New York City, because I was a waiter at a pretty fancy place called called uh, Charlie O's, which had been a Joe Bomb Restaurant Associates place, but they sold it to a young guy whose dad was really rich. Uh, and his dad was in the garment industry and gave a lot of money to politics. So when he got the restaurant, pulling a few strings, uh, he got his kid's restaurant to be the, uh, the uh, to do all the parties, to cater all the parties at, at Gracie Mansion. And, and I remember finishing my lunch shift, at, you know, as a waiter and, this frantic manager comes through the dining room. I need a bartender. I need a bartender now, you know. Uh, and the, the two guys behind the bar, the professionals, you know, they they were union. They didn't need to go to a gig where they had to load a truck and unload it and load it again and unload it again. You know what I mean? They had no interest in that, you know. And I said, I'm a bartender, you know. So she said, well, good. Get your stuff and come with me. And I said, well, okay, let me get gathered up. And I ran over to the bar to one of the guys, Mike. And I said, Mike, write down the 10 top drinks on an on index pad for me. We, I'm going over to Gracie Mansion and I'm a little nervous, you know. Dale, don't worry about it. He says, it's, you won't eat it. It's, it's, it's just going to be Chardonnay, vodka rocks, scotch in the rocks, highballs, uh, Perrier. Don't worry. Tab, you're not going to have to make anything. So please, Mike, just a couple of drinks down there, just in case, you know. Well, all right. You know, so he wrote him down. Of course, he was right. Set up a banquet bar. That's all I served. And uh, the occasion of the party at Gracie Mansion that day was uh, uh, Mayor Beam. It was giving the keys of the city to Rupert Murdoch, who had just bought the New York Post. <laughs> and I, I ended up in my Rainbow Room days, post-Rainbow Room, actually, uh, getting a call from a caterer friend of mine who did really fancy VIP parties. And he said, I've got a gig for you, man. You're going to make drinks named after important things in, um, in his life, you know, uh, 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 Murdoch. And I said, cool, I'm, I'm in, man. So his, his new young Japanese wife, they live in a duplex condo in Soho. I went down there and I set up my whole bar and everything. And it was so surprised. But by then the surprise was over. So he comes up to the bar and he goes, so you're the hot shit, hot shit cocktail guy. Eh? And I said, actually, Mr. Murdoch, our fortunes have risen together in this town. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That's my story starting out in New York and then going to L.A. for a while. And I was lucky from the day one. I, I, I was lucky in New York because I knew the advertising agency that did the advertising for Restaurant Associates, which Joe was the president of. And I got to be at table with him, got to dine in restaurants that were more expensive than my rent. Uh, this was all because my best friend's older brother was one of the partners in the agency. And we were just kind of 
filling out the table, if you will, you know, at these big events where we would try out menus for new restaurants or old restaurants that were changing menus. And uh, we were just filling places in a sense, you know. But I did get to meet Joe and he did. It was the beginning of what would become my real career when I got back from L.A. But I, I worked at Charlie's, which had been a Joe restaurant. And then I, I went out to L.A. and I got a job in one of the top 10 hotels in the world, the Hotel Bel Air in Stone Canyon. Uh, very exclusive place with only 65 rooms and you couldn't get a room unless you'd stayed there before. Figure that one out. <laughs> so, where, where did the, the passion for the cocktails and, and that sort of thing? Like, obviously, the cocktails have been around for eons. Um, what was the cocktail culture like in New York around that time when you sort of took it, when you sort of started really diving in and delving into it? Well, uh, actually, the bars were wonderful. The bartenders were wonderful. Um, every bar in New York had, had a gun with sour mix coming out of it. Every bar. You know, bartenders knew how to make decent martinis, decent Manhattans. And boy, let me tell you, in Midtown, at the fancy cocktail lounges, you got one hell of a scotch, you know, <laughs> two and a half ounces minimum. And uh, there was no jiggering. If you jiggered, that was the cheap Irish bars out in the neighborhood. If you jiggered, people wouldn't even go back, you know. They expected a healthy pour, highballs too, you know, Um and that was, that was the run of the mill. I mean, there were things that people were drinking, like stingers, you know, but stingers all alcohols, white cream, and it's in cognac, you know, you shake it up. It's not going to be, who can, who can mess that up? But things like sours, they were using the gun, you know, and margaritas were using the gun. So your sours, your margaritas, your Tom Collins, they all tasted the same because the stuff out of the gun was the main flavor. <laughs> you know, sometimes you couldn't tell if it was a vodka sour, a gin sour, you couldn't tell if it was a margarita or what, you know. So... Anyway, uh, that the, the bars were no less interesting and no less fun because what makes bars anyway? The people that are in them, you know, and the and the bartender standing behind them, it, it, it is what it is, you know. And I certainly it took the young craft guys a little while to figure that one out and, and realize that nobody cared as they had their tweezers that they made their own quinine, you know, <laughs> their own tonic, you know, that people were not there for that reason; they were there for another reason. I mean, some were obviously, but. You know, the, the idea of getting past that and, and not that I have anything, anything to say, but great things about the craft movement. And that's one of the reasons why I, I redid the book, because I wanted to shine a light on these talented guys. Many of them are my friends. And I wanted to tell the story of how the craft movement and why the craft movement emerged when it did. And that's in the, in the, in the front of the book, you know, where the, where the author, I have an author's uh, uh, um, introduction. Um, so, so what happened was... It, this was not my big idea, by the way. I, I, I was I took to barting like a duck takes to water because I'm friendly. I, I can get over with people in a really, you know, uh, and and even even when I was starting out and had no clue, I, I would I had the little tricks I had, you know. Oh, uh, you know, I haven't made a single over singing forever. How do you like it? You know, <laughs> hoping they'd give me the recipe, of course. <laughs> and you know you get over if you're friendly and you're and you're and you're solicitous people don't care that's what they want you know they want somebody behind that bar who recognizes them and engages with them and they, and you can learn on the way uh and that's what i did in fact and then i went to the hotel bel-air and that was a different story you know i got the gig there for one reason and one reason only there were no hr departments yet Number one, <laughs> there were more than one reasons, I guess, because HR departments would have would have certainly insulated me from that job. Believe me, let me tell you, <laughs> you know, but I had heard that there was a day gig available because they had fired the day. And I got there right away. 
you know, I drove my 69 Dodge out out there and valeted, walked over the Swan Pond arched little bridge and right into the bar, which was, it was all laid out like, like a beautiful garden with bungalows and you didn't really walk through a lobby, you know, which is why a lot of people love this hotel. You know, it's a lot of privacy. You can drive your car behind your bungalow and uh, nobody saw you, you know, President Kennedy stayed there when he was, uh, uh, interviewing Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I walk into the bar and there's this big guy, you know, he's, uh, he looks like a substitute teacher because that's what he was. He was the executive bartender and he had an office and he didn't step behind the bar anymore. He, he planned, you know, Ronald Reagan's kid's wedding. That's what he did there. And uh, so I walked in and said, here, you're looking for a day manager. And he paused for a minute, maybe saying, you know, drop a resume at the front desk or something like that, but he didn't. Where'd you work in New York? I said, I was from New York. And he said, um, I said, Charlie, I was, oh, I've heard of it. What well, was a Joe Bum place? A lot of people had heard of it, you know. Okay, step behind the bar here, uh, pour me a shot. Anything, just pick up a bottle and pour me a shot. Okay, make me a sidecar. They, believe it or not, even the Hotel Bel Air had a gun with sour mix. And uh, everybody did, you know, that was America. That was prohibition. That's what it did to us. Anyway, uh, I made a sidecar. I mean, who couldn't, you know, shot at South Mesa, a little bit of a brandy. <laughs> it's just it's simple. Uh, anyway, um, I, uh, I got the gig, you know, for a week tryout. And that turned into a, 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 but when I saw the bar back, you know, and I'm looking at vintage port, you know, vintage character port, tawny port, you know, I'm just, you know, and then I start the other side, I'm looking at Armagnac and Sauterne and thing. And I'm, you know, my, my Charlie O's was a really cool place, but it didn't have a back bar like this back bar, you know. And so my job was to polish the bottles. And of course, he was no dummy. He, he knew that I was wet behind the ears because as I polished those bottles and read the labels and because it was the day shift, there was no one around. I have a little nip once in a while, see what they tasted like. I learned a lot about what I had on that back bar, you know. So that really got me seriously thinking about this profession. Um, and there was a great piano player. I, I eventually got the night shift and uh, that was especially interesting. Uh, so when I had the opportunity, the steward at the hotel was a youngish guy, a couple years older than me, really interesting guy, graduated out of Harvard, uh, had a degree in philosophy, perfect way to get into the restaurant business. <laughs> <laughs> Still now, even now, a degree in philosophy is a perfect opening to get a job as a bartender. <laughs> So seven philosopher positions are filled up pretty quick, you know. <laughs> anyway, his dream, of course, was uh, his friends were up at Berkeley and they had all moved out to the Bay Area, living in Emeryville and Berkeley. And, and their dream was to open a restaurant. So eventually his dream was to get out of the stewarding job at the Hotel Bel Air and get back up to the Bay Area so they could open their restaurant. They, they called themselves Le Clan or Nair. <laughs> and they, they did invent eventually opened Bucci's restaurant, which is just closed after 29 years of operating. But I was going to be a partner in that um, when the piano player died. And after about six years in at the Bel Air, it was time to move on. And so I went up to San Francisco with Paul to, to look for properties and look for a job because it was, we were six months away from opening. And I had two young children by then. I met my wife in LA. And I realized that there were no bartending jobs in San Francisco that had, except for in the hotels, that had, that had medical. And, the, and you had to Somebody had, 
several people had to die before you could get a job in a hotel because a list of waiting people waiting to get into those jobs, which were magnificent jobs, you know, was just so long, you know. And and I got a call from New York saying that Joe Baum was opening a small place on 49th Street, French, with a two-star Michelin chef and needed a head bartender. I packed up the family and back I went, and that's how I got started with Joe. Uh Working and, and what, he, what does he say to me when I walk in for my interview? He says, Dale, I want, and he had met me, he remembered me from the advertising days because I had worked for the agency that did his advertising and I had been at table with him back in the early 70s. Yeah. And he says, I want a classic 19th century cocktail program here in this place. I, I don't want any, I'm not going to have a soda gun behind the bar. I don't want any mixes of any kind. Uh, and I'm I'm thinking, what the hell does he mean? You know, because <laughs> I had never done anything except sour mix. Every once in a while, a guy at the Hotel Bel Air would say, "Could you squeeze some limes and make me a regular margarita?" Instead of using that shit in the gun, you know. And I would do that for them, squeeze all the limes up, you know. But that was just a rare occasion, right? And um, so I uh, I said okay, and then he said, "What I really, really want you to do, Dale, is I want you to tell the stories." Because he knew that I knew Ron. Ron was a partner in the agency and Ron was a storyteller. And he told stories at table about Joe, about everything, you know. And he knew I knew those stories. So um, he, t- he told me if, you know, if, and he could see that I was kind of, uh, I, I actually said, do you think we should have a couple of bottles, sou- bottles of really good sour mix, you know, a more premium brand that, in case we get backed up at the bar? He says, you know, Dale, you think they had bottled sour mix in the 19th century? I said, probably not. I said, right. And uh, they were probably pretty busy, weren't they? <laughs> he says, if you can't figure this out, I'll find someone who can. I said, no, I got it. I got it. He said, well, go look for a book called uh, How to Make Strings by Jerry Thomas. Didn't say another word about it. So after the third bookstore on Fifth Avenue, I ended up at Scribner's, which was the classy bookstore. And the guy there said, let me look in the old and rare. And he said, you know something, pal, this book was written, was, was first published in 1862, and the last publication was a version of it in 1928. I don't think you're going to find it, pal. <laughs> so I talked to some friends of mine who had, well, one of Joe's partners. I said, how can I get this book? He said, I actually have that book. And I said, I'm going to lend it to you, and I'm going to try to find you some other stuff that you really need to do this gig. And he lent me the books, and I started working on a menu um, for – First of all, for, for, for this little French restaurant, which I, which I could not understand because we had a big copper bucket of beautiful champagnes. The chef was, was a, from Parisian and he loved the wines of Burgundy and that's what we were selling. And, and why am I making this 19th century cocktail list? You know? and, and there's Dale Chilhuli, the famous glass sculptor with Joe across at the banquet across from the bar and Phil George and, and, and Milton Glaser who ended up doing our menu, our beautiful menu. He was a graphic artist at the Rainbow. Wow. And I said to Ray Wellington, one of the cellar rats from the Kevin's Rally days at Windows on the World, what the hell's going on? Because Benny Goodman had just sat down at my bar and asked for Joe. He said, it's a Rainbow Room thing, man. I said, Rainbow Room thing? What Rainbow Room thing? Where have you been? Joe's been working for eight months on the restoration. He's got another year to go over there in 30 Rock, RCA building, GE building. Where have you been? And I'm like, well, apparently not in the know. And I immediately thought to myself, man, I want this gig. And I realized why I was just a lab rat for Joe putting together the stuff that he was going to do over there, (laughs) you know, and try because we certainly weren't selling a lot of it here, you know. 
I mean, we sold some. I, I created a couple of champagne drinks just so we could move something. Um, but he was not interested in creativity for the rainbow. He wanted classics, you know, and he wanted them done properly with proper ingredients. So I put together a menu and presented it to him, and he liked it. And uh, how do you? How do you? How did back then, like especially Joe yourself, like how did you figure out the drive without sort of any external influences? Because I think we talked about this on the phone the other day. Is, is like nowadays you've got social media, like you can flip through your Instagram and you get in, like you can get inspired from Instagram pictures and recipes and stuff. The internet, if you want to try and find an old recipe from Jerry Thomas, you just type in the name of the recipe and up it pops. Like how? Okay, I had uh, the old Waldorf Bar book. I had the Jerry Thomas book. I had a book called Bottoms Up, eight, uh, published in 1951. It was a perfect snapshot of uh, drinks being served at the finest cocktail lounges around the world. Um, I had those kinds of books, uh, which I delved into deeply, you know, doing a lot of experimenting with. Uh, Bottoms Up, you know, that was the one that had the Vargas pictures of naked women yep. and everything. But I've got a uh, the recipes were really really it wasn't pornography by any stretch of the imagination it was an extraordinary book and uh that was extremely helpful you know looking at what jerry thomas did was extremely helpful um and you know trying to find ingredients i had nowhere to look uh i just called people up i mean the, the, the i needed all the bitters that were available at the time uh, angostura was easy because i had actually worked for them for a little while uh but uh, Sazerac, I mean, the, I mean, the Peixot bitters, nobody had it anymore. You know, it's like you couldn't find it. So I called friends in New Orleans and I, and I, I, I found out, you know, that you could buy it down there. And could they ship it? They gave me the so-and-so's making it. And, and finally, after a lot of work, I got them to ship some up to me. But it was, you know, a pain in the neck. And then there was a stuff called Fee Brothers. And they had a couple of varieties of bitters. But... Uh, as as Ted Hay will tell you, you couldn't find that anywhere outside of Rochester, New York, because the guy, the old man who was running it, had just sort of he was the chemist, you know, he he was old and he he made his money with his father during Prohibition. They did like juniper oil and stuff like that to get through Prohibition, and and after Prohibition, they never really pursued because the cocktail didn't come back in any real way, so nobody wanted the bitters anyway, and it was kind of you know dying on the vine and. And it was his son, Joe Fee, who sadly passed this year, um, uh, who really, and his sister, who really revived that company about 15 years ago and took it to the moon. I mean, different flavors and everything. But that's what I was up against. The bitters I had behind the bar were Angostura and Peixotes. Gary Reagan was making orange bitters in his kitchen, and he supplied me. You know, and about two other people around Manhattan who were doing these weird drinks. Um, and that's where... Gaz, Gary Reagan number six bitters came from. Uh, by the way, the one that's in the bottle wasn't the one that we had because when he, when they turned in the uh, the sample to the TTB because it was being made at Sazerac, so it had to be cleared. They, I don't think they had gotten the clearance for food additive yet. You know what I'm saying? Because it's 45% alcohol, and you have to be called a food additive like Angostura bitters in order to be sold in grocery stores. But they didn't have that classification yet and they had to get cleared by the ttb because they considered it and they said well we'd like it to be a flavor additive you know not a beverage bitters and they sent back a note saying this tastes too good i'm sorry can't do it for you you know 
you want it to be a, a, a flavor additive, you got to give it more flavor and it's got to be undrinkable. <laughs> it's got to be undrinkable. So, uh, so uh, Angostura, by the way, if you look at the 19th century posters for it, it shows a beautiful young woman sipping a little copita of Angostura bitters because they used it as a stomach tonic and they drank it. You know, and Angostura bitters is in beverage. Bartenders drink it now. You know, they take shots of it. If, if that stuff came to the TB, TB, uh, TTB today, it would not be accepted, but it's grandfathered in, you know. Well, it's a, a done deal. island just off the coast, had the west coast here. There's an island off the west coast here in, uh, in I think it's in the U.S., and they are an island during Prohibition. That's what they did. They brought in massive bottles of Angostura, and they still have the, the 50 Shot Club. So you go to the bar and you have 50 shots of Angostura and you get your name on the wall. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. Yeah. And they're the biggest, they're the biggest buyers and sellers of Angostura bitters in the world because they just get the big bottles in, they take the dasher off and they just pour it like whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I really need to know that. I need to know about that place. I don't, I'm surprised I don't. Um, anyway. Uh, so that, that, that was the, that was the scene when I, when I was at, uh, uh, Aurora, I looked around to see what other people were doing on menus, and guess what, Sean? There were no menus in Manhattan. Not a single fancy cocktail lounge in Midtown had a menu. The store club was gone. You know, the colony was gone. Uh, the Copa was in between being gone and coming back. But none of them had menus. I mean, you know where you found co- drinks on a menu? Brunch. You know, the one place, the, the three places where I found drink menus were the Bull and the Bear in the Plaza, uh, the Waldorf, I mean, that was in the Waldorf Historia, uh, Bull and Bear, and the Plaza uh, Oak Room, and the, uh, the uh, what do you call it, the King Cole Bar. And they had menus that were in a drawer behind the bar for Europeans. <laughs> you know, and there were old menus, you can see they were folded in, you know, dirty. <laughs> you know, they, th- this just simply wasn't happening. People were drinking high pulse, they were drinking martinis, Manhattans. The occasional whiskey sour was made with a gun, and, you know, some people got a taste for that. Others said that ain't a whiskey sour, you know. So people just simply weren't drinking cocktails, and so there was no need to have a cocktail menu. So I created this one. This was close to my first one, 1987. It had Milton Glaser graphics, as you can see. And my first menu in 1987 had the Algonquin, the Highball, the Between the Sheets, the Bronx, the Coffee Cocktail, the Colony, the Flamingo, the Florador, Jack Rose, Manhattan, Margarita, Martini, Moscow Mule, Negroni, Old Fashioned, Pink Lady, Planet's Punch, Ramus Fizz, Sazerac, Sidecar, Stork Club, Southside in 20th Century, and the bartenders were ready to hang me from the nearest light post. (laughs) (laughs) Even though we had two months of training coming in, to this when we opened our doors sean we were 16 from day one there was no friends and family there was no two weeks of opening pains or whatever like that we had the only opening thing we had was the rockefeller center family party you know that was our our friends and family you know so i i had to go to joe with this menu and say joe it's not working I got to cut the menu down. So I cut it down to this menu with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 drinks, almost just, just over half of what was on this, under half of what was on that, because we were not able to produce these with the speed and the accuracy that we needed. 
and I hadn't really figured it out yet. So it took me six months before we were making good drinks. Uh, but, you know, people hung in there with this in the front bar. It was easier because we had the front bar and uh, we had to make everything a la carte anyway. So what I did, I mean, a la menu. So what I did in the back, like for, for, for example, the Singapore sling, I put the spirits together in a gallon jug in the right proportions. And then I would put the, the final volatile ingredients at the moment of sale. Uh, the, what else did I do that for? I did it for the, uh, oh, the Long Island iced tea, which was not in the menu, but was a very popular drink in that era. I had all the spirits in, in a gallon jug, one half, one half, one. And I, and I, 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 I poured an exact two and a half ounce pour with that because it was one half, one half, one half, one half, one half of the five spirits. I didn't believe in the one, 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 where you're getting five ounces of alcohol. That was just plain stupid. And made, made in the two and a half ounce version in a big iced tea glass with fresh lemon juice, it was a good drink, you know, but made with all alcohol and sour mix. It was a terrible drink. So we were, we were selling them like crazy, uh, but we could pre-batch partially leaving out the volatile ingredients, you know, the Negroni, I mean, you know, basically we could do the Negroni, but I had to take that off two years after we opened. People hated Campari in that era. Oh, that's too bitter, you know. And there was no Aperol. You know, the Campari for beginners wasn't even in the country yet. Yeah. And uh, so I really, t- I, I left the Americano on because it was a long drink, you know. And, it, and but the, but the, uh, and I didn't understand the Negroni when I first put it on the menu. I served it up. Hello. There's not an Italian on the face of the earth that ever drank a Negroni except in a big double old fashioned glass over lots of ice because they understand bitter ingredients and that the water helps ameliorate. And by the time you finish that drink, all the ingredients have come together beautifully and there's no bitterness. But with up drinks, you know, with the up uh, Negroni, one third, one third, one third, it gets warm. And as it gets warm, it gets more bitter. There's no water to make things happen, you know, on a molecular level, to, to, to smooth it out, to release flavors, to bring the three ingredients together. That's why the Italians drank it. They drank, they, they, they understood bitter aperitivos. You know? It's always my <laughs> argument when I get them a Negroni up. I'm like, Italians know how to entertain. The drinks are poured over ice, stirred quickly with the finger if you're Gaz Reagan, um, <laughs> and with an orange twist, and like you send it out. There's no mixing glasses. There's no, there's no mixing glasses. There's no dumping. There's none of this. It's simple and easy because they want to go and entertain and hang out with their friends. I keep telling bartenders the straightest line between the you and the customer. Find the straightest line. Why would you take an old fashioned, muddle it in a mixing glass? What's the point of that? You know, why, why, you know, especially if you're doing the old fashioned, old fashioned where you put the cherry and the orange and then you're, uh, why wouldn't you just muddle it in the bottom of the glass? You're going to serve it in, you know, ding, 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 and then put the ice cubes in and then you build it and then they pass it across the bar because you're done, you know, easy peasy. There are so many drinks that uh, lots of muss and fuss gets involved when you really don't need it. I, 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 I piss off all my craft friends when I say, uh, I don't think this dry shake makes it any better. You know, and by the way, the dry shake was created at Pegu Club by uh, a, a young man who had a bad back. 
and shaking really hard with a lot of ice. He was in absolute terrible pain. So he shook a whole lot first without the ice, and then he put the ice in and shook a little bit and then poured it out because it made it easier on his back, you know. And that's sort of where the dry shake came from, but somebody had the bright idea that it emulsified the egg better, you know. But I made thousands of Ramos fishes at the, at the, Ramos, at the uh, Bel Air Hotel because it was our brunch drink. And that was one of the drinks we had to make from scratch, you know. And I, you know, I shook the hell out of it and I got plenty of foam, you know, I never had to worry about it, you know, and I did not have time to stop along the way with a dry shake and then go back and then damn, I could ding it, ding it, ding it. And now they have the reverse dry shake, you know, yeah, I'm not on. It's nice if you want to do that and you're not too busy, go for it, you know. It gives you something to talk about with the customer, you know, and it makes you seem like you're a chemist, <laughs> you know, but I don't think it has. Damn I've gone one step further. I put uh, Negronis on tap because we sell so many. So I just put Negronis, done, diluted, pour it over the ice, give it a stir, out she goes. Sounds good. To me. You know, bartenders in, in, in uh, COVID are starting to cut some corners. <laughs> you know, they're putting those they're putting those cocktails in cans and bottles and happy to sell them. You know, and they're uh, putting them on. Well, you know, they started putting them on draft a long time ago. Cocktails on draft. I mean, why not? If you can make it work and you're using quality ingredients, that's what counts, you know. So. So fast forward a little bit. What was the first year? What was the year that the first uh, Craft the Cocktail came out? Well, I signed the contract in, in 2000 and it came out at the end of 2001, August of 2001. Right before 9-11. And that's why I wrote the author's introduction to the new craft of the cocktail 2020, because it gave me the opportunity to address 9-11. And that's what I do in the author's introduction. I talk about that era and what happened, you know. Uh, and then I move into the, uh, into the history of the cocktail where I, it gave me the opportunity to talk about uh, how, where the craft cocktail came from. And in the author's introduction, I tell the story of, you know, I had, we had lost our, you know, in the 90s, we were operating both Windows on the World and the Rainbow Room. First, we started with the Rainbow Room, and then uh, the, the uh, Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, wanted somebody to reopen Windows of the World after the first bombing, you know. And they went back to Joe, the man who opened it for the first place, you know, and Joe and the team said, yeah, okay, we're going to do it. And they worked on it and they, and I did training down there too for cocktails and they, they, they brought in a beverage manager, really mostly a wine person named Andre Emmer, who was a seller rep under Kevin. And so it was perfect match. And she, she, in my opinion, has one of the best palates in the business and one of the best noses and is, is a master of wine. And there aren't very many of those. You know, and um, she uh, she took over down there as beverage manager, and I continued as beverage manager, head bartender up at Rainbow. We lost our lease at Rainbow. Bad negotiation with Jerry Spire of Tishman Spire, one of the big management groups in the city. That that uh, you see, we were in a thirteen building building complex called Rockefeller Center that was owned by I'm sorry, an eleven building complex that was owned by by the Rockefellers, and they sold it to the Mitsubishi Property Company back in the uh, 80s and then uh real estate went on the rocks uh, in this in the in the uh in the 80s and um mitsubishi properties went bankrupt at rockefeller center and, and the bank ended up it was in receivership and then 
Uh, Goldman Sachs put together a group of buyers. They were the 51%. And then Tishman's buyer took 20%. And the Agnelli family in Italy, which owns Fiat, took 20%. And then the Rockefeller family members and other investors took the other 5%. And they got in at bottom dollar, having sold at top dollar. So everybody made money who had had a piece of the old Rockefeller Center, mostly the Rockefeller family members. But um, yes, in that negotiation, uh, we ended up losing our lease after 13 years. And uh, I opened a little place that we owned the lease on, Aurora, the place I first went to work for Joe as a as a turnkey, you know, and uh, I worked there for a while. And then that, that went under for reasons I don't want to get into now. Uh, they changed the business plan right close to opening it, threw everything out of whack. Uh, I wanted a, a, a downtown lounge uptown, open at four, close at four in the morning because the W Hotel had opened on Lexington Avenue and they were dumping a lot of people in our neighborhood at like two in the morning. And I wanted to have a baby grand jazz piano player with a real good musician and just do great cocktails, you know, and have bar food, you know, and cocktail waitresses. I didn't want any fancy chef or fancy waiters, but they changed their mind and they wanted to have lunch and that blew it all out of the water. So we closed after 10 months, but it was great. I worked, I hired Audrey Saunders there. I had been wanting to hire her for years because she came to my class way back when she got started at NYU. I was taking teaching class on Jerry Thomas and she always wanted to work for me for nothing. She said in the beginning, because she wanted to learn the craft, but I was at the rainbow home and it was a, it was a union shop and I couldn't do that, but uh, this was an opportunity for us to work together. And it was lovely for both of us. Anyway, uh, Sitting at the bar was a guy named John Hodgman, who's now an actor and a comedian and a book writer, but he was an agent and he worked for an agency called Writer's House. And he said, you got to do a book. This is crazy, man. You're, you guys are doing such cool things here and what you did at the Rainbow Room and everything. And, and by the way, I had tried to write a book at the Rainbow Room. I said, you know, I had some uh, editor types from Dell Books, which was nearby in one of the skyscrapers and they came in every afternoon for cocktails. I said, you ought to be writing a book, you know? I said, I said, hey, you think so? Yeah, this is, you know, no one's ever done this stuff. Look at that menu. God, this hasn't been done for God knows when, you know. This would be a killer book. I said, I think you're right. You know, and I started working on it. I said, I got the recipes all done. That part's done, you know. I said, the recipes, and I can, so I start sending stuff to them. And, of course, Joe knows everybody. You know, he's been building restaurants in Midtown since 1953, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and so the CEO of Dell calls up Joe and says, Hey, Joe, you know, there's a guy at your bar who's writing a book about the Rainbow Room? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> Get down here. They, the executive floor is on the 40, 43rd floor, and we were on the 65th floor. And I walked in the door, and I didn't even get through the door. And he goes, what the hell do you think you're doing? <laughs> How dumb are you, he said. Number one, we don't even own the name Rainbow. It's owned by Rockefeller Center. And if anybody's going to write a book about this place, it's going to be me. <laughs> and I snuck out of there just really happy. I hadn't heard those words, you're fired. <laughs> But that was the end of my book ambitions. But John said, you got to do this. And by then, the Rainbow Room was gone. And I'm thinking, well, maybe, you know, and I just didn't want to. I was busy and I didn't have time to run my midtown, going to publishers' offices. I said, why couldn't we just have drinks and stories and, you know, they could come here and then closed. So I called Wally Maloof over on 56th Street, who had a beautiful uh, uh, open fire grill restaurant. And that's where Audrey went to work after she left the Blackbird. And that was the name of the I call it a pop-up now because <laughs> it closed after 10 months. She went over there after, after we closed and 
I said, Waldy, can I borrow your bar between three and four? And I said, John, I got a bar. If you can get people at exactly three and they got to be out by four, they got to pay a check, but I'll make them drinks and I'll tell them stories. It's done. So over the course of two weeks, he got like six and it wasn't an editor. It was like five editors because they, as soon as they found out there's going to be free drinks and Dale DeGroff making drinks and, and uh, you know, stories, bam, <laughs> you know, I got, I got the whole editorial floor coming in and I had to work my ass off. You know, I had an hour to do this. Right. <laughs> anyway, from that, we got three offers on the book and uh, of course, John, you know, being the man that he is, he said, Dale, I want you to stick to your principles and go for the most money. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it happened, Sean. That's how the craft of the cocktail never was happened. Really, craft of the cocktail in 2001, like I, I've been doing, I've been in the industry since 97 now, 98. So like I'm pre, I'm one of the the younger, older guys where I'm, I'm pre-internet, I'm pre-social media. Like I have still back home in Australia, I have about 500 books of storage that I'll never be able to afford to bring to Canada with me. <laughs> um, but every time I passed a bookstore, it would be almost like an OCD thing. I'd have to go into the bookstore, see if I could find anything that I didn't have. And then I would take that book and I'd cross-reference it with this book. And I've got a couple of notebooks that I've like... I worked on uh, in the Wit Sundays for six months and I literally would take a stack of 12 books down to the beach and I'd go, okay, French 75. What's the, the history notes from this? This cocktail book says the French 75 was this and the next one says this. And so then I try and like piece together history notes and stuff like that. That's exactly right. When I did the first Rainbow Room menu and I would find multiple warring recipes, you know, it was a bit of a chore to try to figure it all out, you know. And uh, I had first I had to figure out simple syrup and sour mix, you know, because we none of us had done that. And that was a whole ball of wax. You know, what's the size of the glass? Do you want to do two to one or one to one? All this stuff, you know. And uh, by the way, if you can see behind me, the, those shelves is one, two, three. We can't see them all. Are filled with my collection of. Uh, of over the years, you know, old books. And I, and, and that's about half of what I had when we moved into this house about five months ago. I gave you yeah, but you were lucky. Easy. You were getting Jerry Thomas's for a couple of bucks a piece instead of, Oh no, I, can't it it yeah, I got stuff. I got stuff early on, but I gave a lot of it to the museum of the American cocktail in New Orleans, which is now housed in uh, the Southern food and beverage museum down there. So uh, I, I unloaded a lot of stuff. Uh, so cross the cocktail. I mean, that was the story of a, what's that? Craft the Cocktail comes out in 2001, sort of really as the, the, the top of the wave is about to, to, to white and to crash for the, cox, the craft cocktail scene. What, what made you do it? What would you do an updated one after 20 years? Well, there are a lot of the reasons that I talked about before. I wanted to talk about 9-11 because I was there September 10th, 2001. I closed the bar. I did, a, I did a seminar. We had a series of seminars happening up there in the Skybox, which was a, a private member's bar overlooking the main bar, like a, a half a floor up in the, med, in the uh, whatever you call that, the median, the uh, mezzanine. And um, I, I had done the event, and I had a lot of friends who came to it, so we went down to the bar, and we, we ended up closing the joint. We had several bottles of champagne. We had dinner, and then there was a woman, GJ, who was fantastic, and we all danced and I woke up the next morning and uh, watched the building fall down and what happened to New York after that was the story I wanted to tell I mean I thought this book would be 
would fall on deaf ears, basically, you know, and because the, the whole hospitality industry went in the toilet for 18 months, you know. And it wasn't until 2003 that everybody said, well, that's it. The hell with you. We're not giving up our lifestyle for these assholes. And, uh, and everybody came back gangbusters, you know. And this book, by the way, um, I didn't really want to do the new edition because I have been making money on this book, Sean, since I wrote it. You know, I mean, I paid the, the, you know, reasonably sizable advance off in about four and a half to five years. And ever since then, this book has been paying a really nice dividend, you know, in royalties. And I thought, well, the money they're going to give me, and as publishing has changed because of the Internet, the upfront money, unless you're a best-selling New York Times author, has gone down. So I thought, well, why would I want to take this money and work my butt off for a year and a half to two years when I'm making money off this book now. I know it's old-fashioned. I know it needs a facelift, but it was a book of its time. This book to me was the book I wanted when I was 24 years old and there was no internet and what the hell is going on. All there was was old Mr. Boston and, and Stephen uh, Kittredge Cunningham's books, which were those long black books. Lists of ingredients, no photographs, no clue about how to make the garnish or what garnish it looked like. So I got pictures in here. I got all kind of stuff that you needed, you know, that I needed as a young bartender. And so it was useful, you know, for not just young bartenders, people at home. I mean, the general audience has kept this book alive. And um, so, but, and so I told the publisher, no, that was two years ago. Uh, well, actually four years ago, because it took a year and a half to produce. And finally, my agent said, you know, you ain't getting any younger. <laughs> you know, if you want to stay relevant, pal, this might be the time to do that book. So we, we pushed hard, got a little bit more money. And then I started thinking about what am I going to say? You know, I don't want to get into molecular. I don't want to get into sous vide. This is not me. That's them, you know. But I do want, I do make drinks with a high degree of deliciousness. I have. I always have. I understand balance. I'd like to showcase these guys that are doing these wonderful things. Not that they haven't got stuff out there already. And I'd like to tell the story of why they are here. Because in here is that story uh, about the 30 years of culinary revolution that preceded our wonderful cocktail revolution. And without that, Sean, there wouldn't have been any cocktail revolution. If it hadn't been going way back 50 years to when Joe opened the Four Seasons restaurant in the famous Seagram's building, a restaurant that changed its menu four times a year, they had, a, they had a freshwater and saltwater fish tanks for, fish, for fresh fish. It, it flew in vegetables from around the world in those days because they hadn't made deals, except in the summer when he made deals with, with farmers. Uh, and then across town, one year later, he opens in another brand new building, the Time Life Building in 1960. He opens a place called La Fonda del Sol, a study of the foods of South America, Central America, the Caribbean, the Americas, you know, and... No one had done that. He sent people down there to get recipes. And guess what, what he had on his cocktail menu? And you know, I found all this out. I, when I worked at the ad agency, all that stuff was in the old files at Restaurant Associates. I'm going through those files because I was bored in the mailroom, you know. And here's this menu from 1960. La Fonda del Sol has got the margarita, three mezcal drinks, pisco sour. What? I didn't know what this stuff was. I had no idea what it was. The mojito criollo. And I'm looking at this menu going, wow, this is cool stuff. I wonder what it is. Because <laughs> I wasn't in the business yet, right? And yeah, that those were on his menu, and he had to import Pisco, he had to import Pascal, and he had to import to the East Coast because it was only on the West Coast. 
tequila. Uh, so Joe was like decades out in front, you know, of this stuff. When Joe told me to make a menu with cla- classic cocktails, he had done that already in another New York restaurant that, uh, you know, had a life and then was gone. And, so he was, he was setting you up. He was setting you up. He's like, well, if you can't do it, I've already done it. It was just 30 years ago. If you can't do it now, he, you're kind of- he wanted someone to do the, see what Joe's genius was, is that he had a vision of a new American way of dining and eating a new American cuisine. He wanted wine back on the table or on the table because we weren't really wine drinkers. He wanted the cocktail to come back. It's a, as David Wonder said, it's the first American culinary art form, the cocktail. You know, that's what David called it. And uh, true or not, it sure makes sense to me. And this is what he wanted. He wanted this to, this, this experience with this small fine dining restaurant was a workshop for him. You know, and he wasn't a Francophile. He brought, you know, Gerard Pango or this two, Pango and two-star Michelin chef guy because he wanted, to, he wanted to jump on the business. He wanted to make money, you know. Uh, but he wasn't thinking about that. He was thinking about the Rainbow Room. And that's what I was doing those drinks for, you know, even though I didn't know it at the time. Um, so uh, he hadn't really done the hard work, you know. He had done those drinks in the 60s and he got the right recipes, from there, you know, because he had people down in Peru, he had people down in Brazil, in the Caribbean, and and finding these recipes and bringing them north. You know, uh, it was an extraordinary time. And when I put the when I put the caipirinha back on the on the Rainbow Room menu in 1990, Joe was walking. By, oh, and the pisco sour, by the way, around the same time. I didn't have it on the original menu, uh, but when I put it on the second menu, also early 90s, you know, Joe was like. Hmm. <laughs> he didn't tell me to do that. You know, I found those drinks. He didn't tell me what to do at all, except that initial conversation, you know, get me classic drinks and make them right and make them real. You know, granted, I, you know, we had tastings. So if I screwed up, he let me know. But uh, it, it was an extraordinary uh, person. He was an extraordinary, he, he, he changed the way we eat and drink in America, one of the people, but he certainly jump-started a lot of things that had been moribund for a long time. We came out of two world wars, a prohibition, the worst economic downturn ever. By the 50s, we were TV dinners, canned food, processed this, processed that, and we were totally happy about it. Oh, the convenience of it all. You mean we can get green beans year-round? Forget the fact that they're cut short like this, really soft and mushy and kind of not so green. <laughs> you know, the fact that they were in a can, we could open, heat it up and eat it. You know, we were happy with that stuff. Women were happy to have formula out of the can to feed their kids, even though doctors found out decades later that the child that was missing out on all the things the mother had to offer, like, you know, and, 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 you know, things that she had built up in her body that were healthy and that she could pass on to the child. You know, so so we were lost. We were lost in the culinary side. It was Joe that broke that with those two restaurants that I mentioned. And then and then, you know, you had Alice Waters and you had, you know, uh, uh, Galton Malo, who created Nouvelle Cuisine, which jumped the Atlantic, you know, with all those wonderful chefs from uh, from that era, uh, you know. And, it, it, and, and then Joe found another man who shared his vision right in the beginning in the 50s, James Beard. So from 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 uh, Windows on the World and La Fonda, James stayed with him as a consultant until he died in 1987 and worked on every single restaurant, you know. And when they opened Windows on, Windows on the World, they had wanted to hire um, 
Did you know the chef uh, Jeremiah Tower? Yes. Star's Restaurant in San Francisco. Yeah. Jeremiah was hired in 1973 by Alice Waters because he had classic training and she was not she was unhappy with the architecture of the plate at, at, at Chez Panisse, the famous Chez Panisse. So he came on and he took over as chef and he did beautiful work with these plates and everything. And then in 1976, he did something called uh, Northern California Regional Dinner with all local foods and fishes and all local wines, locavore before the word existed, you know. And Joe and, 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 and Beard heard about him, and Beard had gone out to Chez Panisse, and he said, this is our guy. But he had already, uh, for Windows in the World, but he had already signed with, with the people that were going to develop stars, his own restaurant you know, where he was an owner, not just the chef, you know, so he, he, tur- he turned them down when they made the offer, if they ever made it, because they found out where he was at. But um, it was an extraordinary time, you know, and, and this audience that was built during that 30-year period, you know, if you want to go back to the, the origins of it, 50-year period, uh, were people that were in love with big flavor, they were willing to take chances. And that's why all these incredible ethnic cuisines exploded across New York and cities all around America. And then eventually in secondary cities, you know, Vietnamese and Thai, and then, and then French techniques with Chinese food. You get this fusion thing happening, you know, Pacific Rim, they called it, you know, Hakusan, you know, uh, fine dining Cantonese for the first time in a long time. Cantonese was always the garbage food, you know, for the fast food, fast the giveaway stuff at the corner where you went down and got the little cardboard boxes of, uh, of uh, low main, you know, but uh, it, it was an, an amazing time. And that audience, that's the audience that we played to when we started getting fancy, you know, uh, in the craft cocktail movement. And by the way, when I lost windows and my little pop-up closed, uh, and I'm, I'm promoting my book. That's how I'm, I'm, I'm an expert now because I got a book and I'm running around the country, you know, doing seminars, promoting brands. But um, I was also doing cocktail safaris in New York and I was curating neighborhoods. Soho, Greenwich Village, East Village. And, you know, in, in 1998, when I started this, there wasn't a whole lot going on in the classic cocktail world, but there were things going on. Evan Clem, Evan Freeman, Julie Reiner, they were, they were out there, you know, hiding here and there. And, uh, you know, there was, there was Keith McNally who had cool stuff. Uh, so I, I would go in, we would do four tastes of drinks and four bites of food to go with those tastes. And um, then people found out about it and they started hiring me. New York Magazine hired me to do an article about it. And they sent some writers with me. And that's when I heard from Jonathan Downey. Do you know Jonathan in London? No. He was the Match Bar Group guy who opened uh, Milk and Honey London and had the Match Bar Group, Margaret Street, had Show. It was one of the three, I think, uh, um, foundational London uh, companies that brought starting in 1994 with the Atlantic Bar and Grill and Peyton uh, and Dick Bradsell, you know, the godfather of the, of the, uh, of the London scene. 
1994 was the beginning date when they opened Atlantic Bar and Grill and Dick's Bar. And then one after the other, Lab Bar, uh, the, the Breakfast Company. I mean, the uh, yeah, the Breakfast Company was called and then, and then the Match Bar Group. Well, Jonathan called me up because he was also coincidentally writing uh, cocktail articles for, for Esquire UK. And, I, and he wanted me to come over and teach classic cocktails to some of his bartenders in his newly formed Match Bar Group. And um, I said, well, I'm pretty busy right now, but let's talk about it. He said, I'm coming to New York, you know, and I said, oh, maybe, you know, I'm doing this cocktail safari. I'll call the guys at New York Magazine. They may not want another magazine on the gig, but I'll call them and ask them. And they said, we don't care. It's the UK. You know, it's not going to be published in this country. So, yeah, he can come. So he came. um, And this was, I want to say, 2000, just after Sasha had opened on Eldridge Street, Open Honey. Uh, and I and I waited till the end, and we split away from the group when the when the when the safari was over. And I said, Jonathan, we're going to go to one more place. I want you to meet a guy. And he was behind the bar by himself in that era. You know, he was he was dead broke. He didn't have a lot of money. He opened on a shoestring, and it had been a mahjong parlor down underneath the Chinese tenement. And he was very very solicitous of the neighbors. The, the Chinese landlord did not want to rent to him when he found out he was going to open a bar. And he, and, he, and he swore up and down. He said, the first time there's a problem, you can throw me out, you know, whatever. I, I, honest to God, I'm going to be a good tenant. I'm not going to have noise in the street. It's going to be. That's why um, Sasha never intended to open a a, uh, a uh, speakeasy. He had a little tiny place. And he said to everybody who came in, he said, I've I, I enjoyed having you here. Uh, I would I would ask you, don't bring anybody back here with you unless you would bring them into your own home or into your mother's home, you know, basically is what he said to him. And please don't talk to anybody in the press, anybody, because I don't want anyone to write about this place, you know. And it was going along fine for about 18 months, and then somebody did write about it. And then he locked the door. He just stuck his head out and he said, closed, locked the door, and the line went away. And the people that were regulars, he sent notes to them or gave them a phone number that they could call in and make a reservation. And from that moment on, it wasn't that he wanted to lock the door. Believe me, he never even thought about having a speakeasy. And yet now, he's, de- he's the man that everybody around the world says invented, reinvented the speakeasy, you know, which is such an irony. Anyway, John and I went there at four in the morning, at two in the morning and left at four, and he made tons of drinks for us. And it was just a lovely evening. And then we got out onto the sidewalk and Donnie looks to me and he says, you know something, mate? This would be a cracking club in London. One year later, Milk and Honey opened on Pole Street in a five-story building as a private club. Because John was an attorney who had written oil contracts in Bahrain. <laughs> he got shit done. <laughs> when, he had, when he had a project, he got it done. And, I, and that year I went to work for him in London, 2003. I went to work for him the, week, the year we opened uh, Milk and Honey London. And Dick had left the company as cocktail director and I joined the company as cocktail director. And what I saw in London... Not then, but in 1998, my first trip for Ideal Marketing, when uh, I went to Atlantic Bar and Grill to do a cocktail competition, the judges were Michael Jackson, the beer hunter, Salvador Calabrese from uh, from then. He was still at Duke's, uh, Peter Dorelli from the Savoy, 
uh, Dick Bradsell and me. And there were 250 London bartenders there. And there was a competition and the seven finalists were going to present in front of everybody. But I was hired by Ideal Marketing and Ideal Marketing was hired by Seagram's to bring absolute vodka to the UK because they were only in the United States, you know, and, 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 uh, John Beach of Ideal Marketing, he was with a company called Peterson Beach first, uh, which was just a promo company. But this was a separate company formed with Seagram's to, to promote Absolute. He called me at the Rain Room, you know, right away. And he said, OK, I need you to come over here. And so he brought me over in 98 for this thing. And he said, I want you to make your Rainbow Room cosmopolitan for all these bartenders, 200 of them, right? <laughs> so we got the bartenders all together and I flamed all 200 oh. of those cosmopolitans. Boom, 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 boom. And everybody's like, what the hell is that? You know? <laughs> and then, and that was the introduction of the cosmopolitan. Although as cocktail director at the, at the mesh bar group, I was not allowed to even have cranberry juice. I was not allowed to make the cosmopolitan because John thought it was a bullshit drink. <laughs> so what did I do? I got cloudberry juice and I made it anyway. <laughs> cloudberry juice is very similar to cranberry juice, right? Because from Scandinavia. Anyway, uh, that, those were the years in London. And you know what they were doing in London? What we weren't doing in the 90s, in the late 90s? Muddling uh, strawberry with yep. basil leaves and doing all this very culinary stuff. It was really them that started that, not us. That came from London. That whole thing was a London idea. And the reason John wanted me to be his cocktail director, because he was fed up with all the fruit and the muddling and all that, and the, and the thyme and the rosemary. And he said, I want these guys to learn the classics because he was a classic cocktail drinker. And he said, I, I'm, I don't care if they make that stuff, but I want classic cocktails in all of my bars and I want them to be properly. And that's why he brought me over. So... <laughs> So what, what do you think of the, the current state of the cocktail scene? Oh, I think uh, right up until COVID, uh, I think that it's, uh, it's gotten beyond its growing pains. You know, like Nouvelle got beyond its growing pains with the 15-inch plates and the little tiny scallop and 19 colored dots, you know, and that was your entree. But we've gotten past that uh, in the culinary side and, and the, whole, the whole self-consciousness of having all these house-made and, 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 and focusing so much on and, and covering the front of your bar with thousands of little bottles that were all your tinctures and house-made this and house-made that. So you had a wall between you and the guests, you know, and, and really the guest was like there as an observer to watch you make these incredible you know, arts of works of art. And I think when they got over that phase and they started still making great drinks that were interesting as hell, but did it like there were any real, any old drink, you know, and just engaged with the customers and realized that they were there for fun. They weren't there because you had, you know, uh, 16 kinds of ice and 42 different herbs that you put in your drink and you grew them in your backyard. You know, they really didn't care about that. Some did. And those were the ones you could talk about and talk to about, you know. I know David Wondrich, when he came out with a punch book, you know, he went around to a lot of these places. He said, you know, guys, on Saturday night, when you get the bridging tunnel crowd and you can't be doing the tweezer drinks for everybody because you're packed, why don't you institute a punch program? And you can have all the shrubs in the refrigerator. You can pour the shrub in and pour the bottle in with a block of ice, put it on the table. We're done. We're done here. And you can go out to the bar and make some tweezer drinks and then go make another bowl of punch. <laughs> you know, it would be a way to get beyond that Saturday night rush, you know. And that's, I think, why a lot of bars started doing bowls of punch, proper bowls of punch, you know, with a shrub. 
So I'm gonna I'm not gonna take up any more of your time because it, we've I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. It's literally a bucket list a bucket list <laughs> podcast for me. And I am so so happy that you you I, said I, yes. I, would, I, would talk I, would, I wasn't expecting. It, it's interesting because I am still. I still am the 26 year old Australian kid who, who came to Canada and I still fanboy out ridiculously hard. Uh, when I get to chat to people like yourselves, Julie, Angus and Angus and I have known each other for 20 years. So did we meet in Australia? Th- hey, did we meet at the bar show in Australia? Is that where we, met? I think we met at the bar show in Australia. We've done, uh, I think when you came for tales of the cocktail in Vancouver, we, we met there too. Um, but it's always, it's never like really, meeting per se it's passing at events and you know nowadays with facebook and everything you go to tales and you walk through the Montelier and you're like i know you but i don't really know you like we're friends on facebook we may have comments on each other's posts a couple of times but that's pretty much it but uh this class. Is- i think we met when i was judging world class all across canada i did the finals the canadian finals unless you're from um I wasn't in the finals that year, but I came over to Vancouver to watch and uh, check it out. But uh, thank you so much for your time, Dale. I really, really appreciate it. It was good. And thank you for promoting my book, The New Craft of the Cocktail. <laughs> no problems at all. Uh, thank you so much. Good luck with the virtual book tour. Yes, thank you. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll chat to you very soon. All right, Sean. It's been a pleasure. Ciao. Thanks. Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. I well, hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.